Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohegan people, known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Mark Dunley. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with coverage of the Lights Out Norlight press conference held before the recent DEC hearing. Then, for our peace bucket, we talk with activists who hung banners in support of a free Gaza at the Empire State Plaza on Wednesday morning. Later on, Rhea Barthel gives us another library report that looks at books about families. After that, Moses Nagel covered the Sunday, November 19th dinner by Capitol District Border Watch, and we finish with another segment about the challenges faced by adjunct college professors. But first, headlines. For the third time this month, a pedestrian in Colony was killed by a car, this time during Tuesday's snowstorm. The town of Bern plans to sell the Switzkill farm property to Albany County for $150,000 after town officials during the pandemic abandoned plans to turn it into a tourist drive. Sheriff's deputies were called to the Rockwell Falls Public Library in Lake Luzerne on Tuesday night after punches were thrown at a heated board meeting. The library has been closed since the staff quit following the controversy over a proposed drag queen story hour. Local anti-hunger groups are urging Governor Hochul to include funding in the state budget to enable all school districts to continue to provide free lunch to students. Funding to expand free lunches had been provided during COVID, but that funding has since been discontinued. The world is on track for a, quote, hellish, unquote, three degrees Celsius of global heating. The UN has warned before... um, has warned before the crucial COP28 climate summit that begins next week. The report found that currently carbon-cutting policies are so inadequate that three Celsius of heating would be reached this century. European offshore wind companies that are threatened to cancel billions of dollars in offshore wind energy production in New York due to rising costs will have a chance to rebid their proposals while still maintaining their construction schedules. A new request for proposals will be issued by the state on November 30th. The four wind farms presently under contract could supply enough power for two and a half million homes. The Times Union reports that a committee of the Albany County Legislature voted in favor of giving all 39 legislators, as well as three county-wide elected officials, 12% raises in 2024. The raises are among $3.8 million in adjustments to County Executive McCoy's proposed budget. Other proposed changes include $250,000 for a nature preserve fund and $100,000 for bus passes for refugees and migrants. That's it for headlines. The New York State Department of Environmental Conservation held a public hearing on November 20th about their proposal to make the Norlite hazardous waste incinerator comply with new legal requirements on how they handle toxic ash from their pollution control equipment. Andrea Cunliffe filed this report on the press conference held by Lights Out Norlite prior to that hearing. 
The DEC held a hearing Monday night, November 20th, at the Cahoe Senior Citizens Center to receive public comments after Norlight objected to the DEC amending the expired permit for the Norlight Hazardous Waste Incinerator. Lights out, Norlight. Arrange this press conference. Hudson Mohawk Magazine was there. This is a recording of that press conference. And I'm here on behalf of Lights Out Norlight. We are here for today's hearing about the application of the Bevel Amendment to Norlight. Norlight has been utilizing this amendment, which was meant to be a temporary thing back in the 90s, for 30 years. And there are massive piles of hazardous waste dust that the DEC has finally come forward to regulate. So today we have three quick speakers before we go into the hearing itself. Our first one is Dr. David Carpenter. He is the director of the Institute for Health and the Environment at the University of Albany, a expert in his field. I'm a public health physician, and my job then is to do what I can to prevent human disease resulting from environmental exposures. The dust that uh, comes from the Norlite plant is basically fly ash. It's what's left over from burning and from the incineration of a whole variety of, of chemicals. Fly ash is a very dangerous chemical, or mixture of chemicals. It has particularly heavy metals, arsenic, lead, chromium, copper, things that cause cancer, things that cause nervous system effects. It has polyaromatic hydrocarbons. That's the uh, cancer-causing chemicals that are uh, part of heavy oils. And particularly, it has dioxins because they're the product of combustion. They're known human carcinogens, and they actually do a whole variety of other things besides causing cancer. So the issue here is, will DEC finally put all of this hazardous material in a secure landfill rather than putting it in what they call blocks, which is a type, basically a type of concrete? Anybody that knows about concrete knows that concrete doesn't last forever. It degrades. It decays. These blocks release all of those hazardous chemicals. The whole community, wherever the blocks are sold, a wider community is going to be adversely impacted. So I urge DEC to take care of this hazardous waste and treat it as it should be, hazardous waste. Hello, my name is Ed Sokol. I live at Nine Etzel Place in Cohoes. It's only a couple hundred yards from Norlite. I've had problems with Norlite for the last 40 years. The judge requested some reasons why Norlite shouldn't mix the ash into their product. The reasons are common sense reasons. Just imagine if 9-11 Twin Towers were constructed with Norlite block mix. Imagine all the pollution, the dust, down the streets of New York City, dust on all of the first responders, on the cars, on the sidewalks, and even being silica dust, which is extremely more harmful. What if a building was built in a populated area with Norlite block mix? Then that building had to be imploded, creating silica dust that the people will breed. Can you imagine a do-it-yourself homeowner? deciding he wants to build an outside entrance to his building, not knowing that the foundation was made from block mix from Norlite. 
He saws through the wall to make the entrance, dust blowing from the saw, creating dust throughout the basement. Later on, maybe his wife and children decide to clean it up, breathing this silica dust. What about all the dust escaping from the 18-wheeled trucks that pick up the block mix from Norlite? Filled to the top, covered with canvas. This canvas is loose on both sides. The truck travels 40, 50 to 60 miles an hour down the highway with silica dust escaping on both sides of the truck. This block mix is also so the driveway contractors as a base for their block top. What if this driveway is near an owner's drinking well or garden? The rainwater washes harmful chemicals into the well water onto the root vegetables. Years ago, the health department told us to peel root vegetables and wash above ground vegetables thoroughly because of Norlite. Why aren't the block mixed marked? They're hazardous material. For the past 30 to 40 years, Norlite was unable to contain the fugitive dust that they create. Silica dust escaping the conveyors. Dust created at the end of the conveyors. Piles uncovered. The wind blowing silica dust on people's property. Trucks and front loaders creating dust when moving the block mix. All this has been proven by DEC, by documentation and lawsuits. We, the public, deserve the right to breathe clean air. This has not happened in the last 30 to 40 years. Please stop the dispersal of toxic fly ash from Norlite as black mix. So, yeah, my name's Chris Savinsky. I live a little less than a mile down the road from Norlite, uh, where I've been raising four kids with my wife, Stacy for the past 17 years. From the moment we moved in and we started to ask questions about what was that facility down the road, we started to find unsettling answers. Those answers have really gotten us to this point today where it's clear that there's danger to the local residents as a result of those huge piles, uh, both of the aggregate product and also of the block mix that is essentially the garbage that is not the clean steam that comes from the top of the, uh, the kilns uh, of stacks. The other thing I wanted to mention is I have no interest in people losing their jobs. You know, we're here tonight to talk about amending the permit that Norlite has to store these piles on their, on their facilities and to use it in block mix. There are plenty of other commercial applications of, of Norlite's activities, but this block mix blows into my family's backyard for decades. Small children lived in the, the housing complex in front of this place, playing basketball, riding their bicycles, breathing in all of this dust accumulating to the amount of estimates of 60 to 70 tons per year of, of this dust. Now, would you live that close to a facility and have your kids playing outside, uh, you know, on any given day in that close proximity of these enormous piles, unprotected from the wind, sweeping off of those piles onto your children's playground for decades? We've been complaining about this for decades. Hopefully it all culminates here tonight in the amendment of this, this permit to revoke their right to sell this as block mix and to store it on their, on their grounds uncovered. It doesn't take a scientist. I got a PhD in biology. I've done decades of cancer research. Okay, guys, I'm not smarter than you guys, though. I also poured concrete for a couple of years during college, and I also attended bar for 10 years to help pay for my kids, you know, sports equipment and you know, other various things, you know, pay, pay the bills. I don't want your jobs. It doesn't take a PhD in cancer biology to know that these piles are dangerous, all right? 
are not here spewing lies. I see some signs that suggest that that's the case. We're here to talk to the facts that for decades, it's been a known fact that this, this, this company has failed. You know, it's environmental testing. It's been fined dozens and dozens of times. Every time we look, we find something dangerous going on. So the company has had decades to clean up its act. Yet here we are, you know, decades later, still trying to amend this permit so that, you know, some unsafe activities can be ceased at the Norway plant. And I also want to point out that roughly three years ago, when it was discovered that Norway was burning a fire retardant, very hard to burn, by the way, a group that is now called uh, Lights Out Norway got together and started to escalate and raise the attention to this matter. And in, in so doing, found out that maybe even more egregious were the large piles of fine silica dust and these huge piles of fly ash that are sitting on the site. And indeed, without this team's work, and I am a very sporadic member, there is a core team here of dedicated, persistent activists who have been raising this issue and researching this issue and doing the work of the people to help educate our state government on what was going on, to help inspire our state government to go and actually do studies to, to prove that, in fact, a lot of this material was leaving the site and littering the surrounding neighborhoods, okay? So I really want to point out that without the dedicated work of these individuals, a very diverse group of concerned citizens, that we wouldn't be here today. So thank you to the New York State government for suggesting that we amend this permit. It's a positive step, so I want to make sure we acknowledge that. But really, the real thanks go to the dedicated activists who have been uncovering all of these really poorly run activities at the Norway facility for decades and inspiring the state to get involved and to study the issue to uncover exactly what was going on. So thank you, everybody, for being here tonight. This is Hudson Mohawk Magazine reporting from the press conference with the DEC regarding Norlight on November 20th. Fifty people spoke at the public hearing. Those who spoke in favor of allowing Norlight to evade the law were either paid by Norlight or groups that received support from Norlight. The other speakers were local residents negatively impacted by the plant's emissions. Norlight will seek to delay DEC's permit modification as long as possible. For our Peace Bucket, we hear from three individuals who did a banner drop in support of the Free Gaza on Wednesday morning at the Empire State Plaza. On Wednesday morning, Israel announced that it had agreed to a four-day halt to its assault on Gaza. The agreement includes Hamas releasing 50 hostages in exchange for 150 Palestinian prisoners held by Israel. Those freed by both sides will be women and children. Meanwhile, individuals supporting a permanent ceasefire did a rush hour banner drop in support of a free Gaza over the roadway leading into the Empire State Plaza. We talked to three individuals about why they participated in the banner drop, which was shut down by state police. My name is Angela Castillo Vilches, and I'm here to stand with the people of Palestine. And I understand you did a, a banner drop today? Uh, three banner drops today um, at the Capitol. Um, we're here to make sure that our elected officials in Washington know that we not only want to cease fire, but we also want to end the occupation in Palestine. And what did the, the banner say? The banner said, free Palestine. One of them said Gaza. And we also had the Palestinian flag while we... Um, also billowed it um, over the top of the banners. Now, of course, there is the discussion that uh, Israel 
and Hamas has agreed to, I guess, a five-day pause, Risa Hodges, is that sufficient? Not only is it not sufficient, it's also um, quite concerning. Um, we know from past histories that when these pauses are called, these last moments before the ceasefire tend to be some of the most deadly moments um, during these occupations. So not only are we asking for a ceasefire, but we're also ending, we're also asking um, for the end of Israeli occupation in the land of Palestine. Now, you know, Governor Hochul has been quite outspoken in terms of their support of Israel, as most of the Democratic leaders. Do you think that reflects the uh, opinions of people in New York State? Absolutely not. You know, we've been to a lot of actions here in uh, the capital of New York, Albany. Um, there have been, you know, about two or three actions a week. And we keep seeing people show up and show out to these actions. More and more people come every single time. So we know that that's not true and that uh, Governor Hochul is not reflecting um, what the people of New York want to see in the world. So what needs to happen now? What needs to happen is that we need to call for an immediate ceasefire, um, right? We know that uh, without the ceasefire, um, people will continue to die. Thousands and thousands have already died, up upwards of 13,000 um, in Gaza. Um, we also know that more than half of those folks that have died um, have been children. The average age is five years old for those who have died in Gaza since October 7th. Um, and more kids have been killed in Israel in one month than in a full year of any conflict anywhere in the world since 2019. So not only are we asking um, for the ceasefire um, to, to kind of have an immediate stop to what we're seeing in Gaza, but we're also asking um, for the end of Israeli occupation that throughout 75 years has persecuted and killed Palestinians um, of all ages, um, whether it's in Gaza or in the West Bank. Um, so not only is this a movement um, to make sure that the bombs are stopping, um, but we also want to make sure that there is no more violence um, on the people of Palestine and that there is no more land grabbing of the Palestinians. Palestinian land. Now, a lot of, you know, uh, say Democratic officials argue, well, you know, doesn't uh, Israel have a right to defend itself against the attacks that Hamas had launched? Well, we know that occupied lands um, deserve to defend themselves. In occupations, there is only one oppressor. There is only one aggressor. In this case, um, it is the government of Israel that has continued to aggress the people of Palestine. Um, so, the sentiment that um, Israel has um, the the ability or the chance to defend itself doesn't actually align with the historical context of um, of what's going on um, in in Palestine. And in fact, um, we know that this is something that uh, the U.S. and Britain have um, funded in other places, such as my homeland of Puerto Rico, um, where um, Vieques was bombed for many, many years up until early 2000s. Um, and these movements are connected, right? The bombs that were dropped in Vieques um, were also, are also now being um, dropped in Palestine. So we are a united movement um, and this is a united struggle. So I understand the, uh, the state police came over and didn't exactly applaud the banner drop? They didn't exactly applaud it, no. Um, in fact, they had us move it um, quite immediately. We were there for about, uh, I would say, 10 minutes. Um, people were... 20 minutes. Uh, 20 mi <laughs> people were honking. People were showing support. Um, so we know, again, that New York State is behind the ceasefire um, and that we have folks here that are part of the movement to end the occupation um, from Israel. Thank you very much. The next uh, banner carrier is uh, Michael Kudesh. Michael, why, why did you join the event today? Well, it was, a, it was a nice chance to get together with people who are similarly minded in um, 
their frustration right now with the United States government's complicity in the Israeli government, in the genocide that is happening right now in Gaza. Um, it was an action that I felt uh, would be powerful and would speak to a lot of people. And we needed to uh, take that action. And, you know, what is your personal you know, perspective on the situation in Gaza at the moment? I think like everyone, uh, or at least the majority of people who've been watching since uh, October and seeing what the response has been since October 7th, and it has been an outsized, uh, you know, overwhelming, destructive response. Um, the aim of which I think is something, especially, uh, I won't speak for all Israelis, but especially for uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, has been the destruction, the complete destruction of Gaza and its people. Um, and it is, uh, it's been catastrophic. It's just, it, it, it's displaced millions of people. It's killed over 13,000 people. We already know that the population of Gaza um, is overwhelmingly children. The median age is 18. So these are, children are dying. You know, uh, it's absolutely barbaric what is happening. Um, but it is also happening on our dime. As American citizens, we're paying billions of dollars a year to fund the Israeli military, to fund their intelligence response, to fund um, how they treat an entire population and how they uh, police an entire population and now how they uh, exterminate an entire population. So it's just it's obvious to me that that is something you know to come out and speak for a ceasefire to come out and speak for peace um for some sort of resolution in this that requires bringing israel to heal and to a table to work with the other side and stop this genocide is just an absolute necessity hi my name is taina wagnak and i'm here because i believe in this cause um so being a haitian american myself um i come from a community that is oppressed by not only its um, neighbor, but also from its former um, colonizers, the French. And so to have the opportunity to come here and call for the freedom and release of innocent people um, and freedom of Palestine in particular is m the main reason why I answer the call. Uh, and what would you like to see happen at this point? I would love to see um, Governor Hochul, as well as the legislative members, to be able to stand in union with the remaining New Yorkers and call out Israel for this treatment of Palestine. And so also to call out the Biden administration, administration for ignoring what is happening um, across um, in Palestine. And have you been to some of the other demonstrations uh, locally? So this has been my first one thus far, but I have been able to support other ones um, via like social media, social media. But this was happening right in my backyard, so I couldn't miss it. This has been Mark Dunley for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. We do a weekly peace bucket for the Wednesday show. The next local protest will be this Friday at 2 p.m. at Crossades. You can find our various stories about the conflict between Israel and Hamas by going to mediacentury.org and typing into the search section. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Mark Dunlight.
I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine and then the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, also streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, neighbor, co-worker, or that special person you see at the bus stop. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. With the holiday season upon us, with many families' gatherings taking place, Bria Barthel talks with Lori Dreyer, Lansing Berg branch manager for Troy Public Library, about five novels that offer various takes on families and family dynamics. Hi, this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and I'm back once again for my monthly talk with Lori Dreyer, manager of the Lansingburg branch of Troy Public Library. Lori, welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Hi, Bria. So nice to be here. Uh, thank you for having me. And we're uh, recording this in mid-November, and we've got some interesting books for you. So, Lori, start us off. Yeah, well, because it's mid-November, I wanted to explore books and stories that uh, are about family relationships. You know, family relationships are some of our most powerful and influential relationships in our lives. So I figure we're all about to have our holidays, and that's prime time for readers to glean what they can uh, from family stories, you know. And all of us have, fa- many of us have family sessions coming up at Thanksgiving. Exactly, exactly. And uh, so I tried to make it a mix, you know, family stories that are, can be comedy, they can be drama. I think most often they're dramedy. <laughs> so, uh, so I picked out five great choices for exploring family bonds. This is by no means an exhaustive list, uh, but I'm going to jump into it. Uh, the first book is called The Nest. You may have heard of this one. It's by Cynthia Dupree Sweeney. It's about four siblings who are about to inherit a sub- their substantial trust fund uh, when one of them commits a faux pas that threatens all of their plans. Each of the siblings believes that this inheritance will solve a whole host of problems uh, and the, uh, the, they have basically inflicted on themselves and the consequences of those problems. So now they must consider how those plans are going to change. Uh, and, you know, they have to deal, they have to reconcile their relationship with their eldest brother, who's the one that made the faux pas. And how does a nest come into this? They refer to the inheritance that they're getting, their trust fund, they refer to it as the nest. Oh, as in nest egg. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So Sweeney does a great job of examining uh, not only this family and the relationship between all these siblings, but also how money affects those relationships uh, and then how your ambitions can change through life. Uh, so I, it, she does a great job of writing in a witty way, but also making it very endearing. So highly recommend The Nest. Sounds great. In my family, we didn't have to worry about what to do with the inheritance. <laughs> yes, I think that's a lot of us. So this is, you know, can be fantasy reading too. <laughs> 
Uh, my next pick is called The Cherry Robbers by Sarai Walker. I may have spoken about this book before. I read it a while back and I really enjoyed it. It's um, We start the book by reading 80 or meeting 80-year-old Sylvia Wren, who is one of the most important artists of the 20th century and currently lives in New Mexico in 2017. Uh, but then a reporter finds their way, uh, find there does some research and, and won't stop uh, asking Sylvia questions until she confirms her former identity as a Connecticut heiress. So enter Iris Chapel, the second youngest of six sisters who are each desperate to leave the stifling oppression of their father's home in 1950s Connecticut. Uh, the problem, of course, is that their mother, who is this amazingly morbidly sad woman who is prone to fits and outbursts of fortune telling in the creepiest way possible. Um, and as the sisters leave the household one by one, it becomes evident that their mother's warnings may hold more weight than any of them had actually considered. Uh, Walker tells this amazing Gothic mystery story uh, about these seven women's lives. So the six sisters and their mother um, and and how it's, you know, been a profoundly affected by forces beyond their control. It's very much a, a gothic feminist tale. It was very entertaining um, and, uh, and enlightening. Sounds great. So that's two families that have inheritance problems or issues. What's the next one? Okay. <laughs> well, this one's a little different. This one is called This Is How It Always Is by Lori Frankel. Um, so parenting is always a leap into the unknown with crossed fingers and full hearts. And in the Walsh Adams family, love and laughter are primary, but there are things that we don't talk about with outsiders. Five-year-old Claude, the youngest of five boys, loves dressing up and wants to be a princess. Uh, and when people ask him what he wants to be when he grows up, he answers honestly. He wants to be a girl. While Claude's parents accept Claude for who he is, they're not ready to tell the world. So they keep this secret. But sometimes secrets end up keeping you. And one day the secret is explosively revealed and the family must figure out how to proceed. Uh, Frankel writes with honesty and, and based on her own life in some ways. Uh, the bond of the Walsh Adams family is strong and very charming. And each of the characters is delightful and leaps off the page despite the drama in this book. And say the title and author again, please. Sure. That one is called This Is How It Always Is by Lori Frankel. A book you could probably cannot get in Texas, but they do have it here at the Lansingburg Troy Public Library. Okay, and the next one? The next one is The House in the Cerulean Sea by T.J. Klune. This one's a little different. This one is, it's kind of, the setting, the world of this one is a little bit more fantastical. Uh, it's about Linus Baker, who's a 40-year-old who lives a solitary life. He's a caseworker at the department in charge of magical youth. So this is our fantastical part, where he oversees the well-being of children in government-sanctioned orphanages. One day, Linus is unexpectedly given a curious and highly classified assignment. He must travel to the island Marcius Island Orphanage, where there are six dangerous children. Dangerous magical children, yes. 
Uh, the children, of course, quickly endear themselves to Linus as he learns that they aren't the only secrets that the island keeps. Arthur Parnassus, their charming and enigmatic caretaker, will do anything, though, to keep these six children safe, eventually leading Linus to make a choice. Does he destroy a home or watch the world burn? Uh, this wonderful, heartwarming book is the profound experience of discovering an unlikely family in an unexpected place and realizing that family is yours. I thoroughly enjoyed this book. If you are going to read one book on family this year, make it this one. It will give you all of the warm fuzzies. And the author and title again? That is The House in the Cerulean Sea by T.J. Clune, K-L-U-N-E. Cerulean. I got to remember that for my crossword puzzles. And the last book? The last one is called Hello Beautiful by Anne Napolitano. Um, this centers on William Walters, uh, who has prodigious skill on the basketball court, and that earns him a scholarship to college. He quickly meets Julia Padovano, a spirited and ambitious young woman. But with Julia comes her family. She is inseparable from her three younger sisters, Sylvie, Cecilia, and Emmeline. Happily, the Padovanos fold Julia's new boyfriend, William, into their chaotic household. But when darkness from William's past surfaces, it shakes the sisters' loyalty to one another. The result is a catastrophic family rift that changes their lives for generations. This book asks the question, what is possible when we choose to love someone, not in spite of who they are, but because of it? Uh, and it's, it's the real tearjerker. So be prepared. <laughs> okay, so those are five books with varying takes on family dynamics, suggested by Laurie Dreyer, manager of the Lansingburg branch of Troy Public Library. And the Lansingburg branch is available, is, is available. Is where? Uh, we are located at 27 114th Street in Troy. We're at the corner of 4th Avenue and 114th Street. And during the summer, I tell people it's down the road from Snowman Ice Cream because everyone knows where that is. Uh, but unfortunately, they're closed for the season. You can still come and visit us, though. We're open all winter. <laughs> okay. And the website for more information? That would be www.thetroylibrary.com. Dot O-R-G. All of our events are listed there. If you go to the left side, you can see uh, library events. Click on that and that will take you to our event calendar. Thanks a lot, Lori. And she has wonderful staff people here. So in the event Lori isn't here, you can talk with Michael or Ernst or any of the other wonderful staff. Thanks, Lori. Thank you, Bria. That was another of Bria Barthel's interviews with Troy Area Libraries. The five recommended books were The Nest, the Cherry Robbers, This Is How It Always Is, The House in the Carillion Sea, and Hello Beautiful. On Sunday, November 19th, Capital District Border Watch hosted a dinner in Albany to celebrate asylum. Moses Nagel filed this report, which includes comments from some of the recent refugees. Estamos muy alegres que ustedes están aquí, que estamos juntos en un lugar celebrando. Es muy, muy especial. Capital District Border Watch is an organization that was formed in 2019. Our organizing grew out of the separation of families and children at the border that took place in May of 2018. It was the time when our community came together and Border Watch decided that we needed an ongoing presence to advocate 
for just immigration policies at the southwest border. And every time we turned around, there was another immigration policy that we needed to advocate to change. This is our first event, first dinner since the pandemic. So we're especially excited to be in person, to be together, to be eating food. It is so important. And I'm aware as we gather here tonight, our world is not well. Our common humanity is threatened. In recent weeks, in Sudan and in Gaza, so many difficult things are happening. Our hearts struggle to take it in. And it is not separate from our advocacy tonight. Yesterday I learned that Biden's proposed legislation to increase funding for the Israeli Defense Forces will carry provisions to extend the border wall. None of us are free or safe until all of us are safe and free. That every human being has basic, inalienable rights. And these include the right to seek protection from harm, the right to be treated fairly and with dignity and respect, and the right to move freely. People have been migrating for a long time. Humans have been moving from place to place ever since there have been humans. Every one of us in this room this evening has roots somewhere else. Many of us in this room this evening are here only because our ancestors fled persecution. But every right carries with it a corresponding responsibility. If we all have the right to seek protection from persecution, then doesn't it follow that we all have the responsibility to welcome and protect those who are fleeing persecution. And living up to this responsibility is how we measure ourselves. Living up to this responsibility is how we measure our nation. For the greatness of a nation is measured not by its wealth, its technology, or its military might, but how it treats the most vulnerable among us. So this event is um, to raise funds to help the Capital Region Sanctuary Coalition's Food Committee because um, we have found that in the hotels they aren't getting very good quality food, nothing very nutritious. On December 10th we're going to do a vigil at Stuyvesant Plaza. And the vigil is called Make Room at the Inn. And it's just broadly to encourage governments to be much more welcoming. So, hello, Hot Samalak Magazine. We are getting our food now. Going into the cafeteria part of the church, where there's a big line of food. Hello, everybody. <laughs> you got the line going on both sides. Serve yourself. Yeah. 
if anyone's vegetarian, there's tofu down at the end. Awesome. Just tell me a little what, what we're seeing on the line, what's on the line. Yeah, there. we've got arepas, we've got beans, we've got beef, chicken, there's potato salad, regular salad, tofu for vegetarians. Wow. Uh, out before, we had chips, salsa, guacamole. Yeah. Did you sample anything so far? I did not. Not yet? Okay. But I did make the fruit salad. Okay, great. That will be brought out later for dessert. Thank you. I am so excited to announce our first musical performer. Tayina Celia is an Albany-based Puerto Rican singer, composer, interdisciplinarian artist, and activist carrying on the tradition of her ancestors, fusing past and present struggles into one soulful and vibrant voice. is a local nonprofit organization. We have a lot of programs in the West Hill for food access. So we've got one thing called the Produce Pickup Project. We give out about 10,000 pounds of fresh vegetables and fruit weekly to about 200 families a day. We met the refugees when they were coming there to receive food. And over the past six months, we've been able to get them driver's license, LLCs, ITIN numbers, get placed with job opportunities, health insurance, and a bunch of other things. So, so this is like, with this event, they're launching a, their own a, catering they're, they're business? They're calling it Big Johnson's Kitchen. Uh, the, the bigger guy back there, his name is Johnson. Uh, and so this for, for them, they did a little news article about it, and he said, Big Johnson's Kitchen is open. I'm 14. I'm 10. What brought you here? What made you decide to come to this event? Um, well, our mom thinks it's uh, important to hear this person speak, so we just went along with her, really. Yeah, and, it's in, and we're interested. I mean, yeah. I'm interested. Which, what part are you interested in particularly? Yep. Other cultures. Uh, you ate the arepas, but you didn't. I'm not hungry. You're I just not hungry? Before. I love it. Hola, buenas noches. Good evening. Um, so, really, uh, we came because, you know, there was a lot of challenges in Venezuela um, when we were there. We left because of persecution, because we're queer, and that is not uh, openly welcome in Venezuela at this time. Um, we're a couple, and so um, we did this journey together. It was a very long and treacherous journey, but of course, right, we're here and trying to make the best of it. Nosotros en la travesía cruzamos 
aproximadamente 8 o 9 países. So we in our journey, we walked just about like 6 to 8 countries. But of course, right, we made it here and we're here today. So maybe um, something that I think folks here would like to know is, you know, how your welcome has been to Albany, um, to the capital regions. Bueno, eh, nosotras eh, cuando llegamos, llegamos a Nueva York, a la ciudad de Nueva York. So we arrived um, through New York City. We were there for 21 days. We were uh, in sanctuary in a church uh, where we were sleeping in cots. But thankfully, we had become good friends with one of the folks coming in and out of the sanctuary. And so it turned out that you know we asked him like, please, we'd like to leave this um, kind of essentially rape the shelter. And he pulled some strings, made some calls. I'm not sure what he did, but he got us essentially a uh, a seat on the bus up. So we were excited, we were also really scared and nervous about moving up here. Um, obviously, you know, we came here, we don't have friends here, we don't have family here, so we, you know, felt alone except for the grace of God that was always with us, and so um, we were able to come up here. My last question for you is kind of what do you have upcoming? What, do you, what are you looking to do here? Um, what do you, where do you see yourself in a couple years? Obviously, right, we're here for a dream. A lot of that dream includes coming home at the end of the night and being like, oh, I'm just, I'm tired, I'm ready to relax and rest. Right, um, obviously that's not something that is um, able to happen right now. And so, right, a lot of that um, includes, you know, making sure that we're able to better ourselves. We have personal goals, just like everyone else, right? We have professional goals, just like everyone else. Um, and we're really looking forward to doing that, not just for us, right? We came over as adults, but also, right, to inspire and also take back a lot of that um, success to Venezuela. That was Moses Nagel's stories about the recent Board of Watch dinner. Venezuelan food was provided by a new catering company started by asylum seekers. And we end our show with an interview about adjunct professors and hear from Ruth McAdams. Carson Cowan reports. Welcome to another edition of Navigating Academia on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. We are diving into the intricate world of academia with none other than Skidmore's professor Ruth McAdams. Today, she is unraveling the mysteries behind unions and their impact on private institutions, and despite her expertise, is navigating the uncertain currents of academia herself. Ruth teaches primarily first-year students and specializes in 19th century British literature. She never imagined she would need to step into the advocacy role for contingent and adjunct faculty rights. How did you come to help form the first contingent union on Skidmore's campus? I, I did not know much about unions uh, growing up. Uh, my parents, I am from Chicago. Uh, my parents were both like upper middle class professionals and unions were not um, like something I knew much about. Um, and then when I started my PhD at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, um, there uh, all the grad students are unionized and uh, they've been unionized since the late 1970s. And when the union was having a kind of annual meeting, uh, they invited all the new graduate students to come to the meeting. And um, I didn't know what it was about, but all my friends were going. Um, so I went 
and got involved then. I, I appreciated the union. I appreciated what it did for us. And then, you know, fast forward till years later, when I got to Skidmore, it dawned on me pretty quickly that non-tenure track faculty at Skidmore lived really difficult lives, that many of them were struggling to make ends meet, given the, the low pay in that really expensive area. And also that many of us were in this state of constant precarity. So we never knew whether we'd have a job from year to year or semester to semester. And it was it's hard to live like that. Like, you, you know, you can't plan for the future. If a, if a student asks you to be their advisor, you, you can't say yes, because you don't know if you'll have a job for the four years of that student's college career. Um, and, you know, I would say within about the first year um, that I was here, I um, got to know a few other non-tenure track faculty who, you know, shared my frustrations. And one thing kind of led to another, though it was a really slow and long road. I would say that we began trying to form a union in 2018. And it wasn't until 2022 that we were finally successful. So it's a long story. <laughs> Did you ever imagine that you have to take on this role? No, no, absolutely not. And I didn't want to. I, I didn't want to do this. I really just wanted to pursue my research, my my area of study, but it absolutely had to happen. Skidmore's non-tenure track faculty needed a union, needed a union. And so I felt myself more and more taking on you know, an important role with, of course, many, many, many others. How many of your colleagues or... How many professors in general do you believe are not fairly compensated for their work? All of them. <laughs> a lot of them. <laughs> a, a lot. It's a lot. I used to feel that way. Every point in my life, I made a choice that this is what I wanted to do. And there were other things I could have done. I would have been paid a lot better. <laughs> But I really wanted to do this because I loved it. And it took me many years to understand that that love of my work was being taken advantage of by an employer that was eager to pay me as little as they could possibly get away with. What was the process like to begin a union representing non-tenured track faculty? So the process began in secret, uh, really um, very clandestinely, um, and it involved a series of one-on-one -on -one conversations with our non-tenure track colleagues. So for the first four years, the administration did not know what we were doing because our union represents the non-tenure track faculty. We were keeping it a secret within that community. When we reached out to our non-tenure track colleagues, though, there was some reluctance, I would say. I would say reluctance rather than resistance to what we were doing. And the reasons were many, but they often boiled down essentially to fear. People were fearful that that doing this would anger, um, you know, administrators would anger um, our bosses and that we could be retaliated against. I would say another major, major problem that we faced in the early years was that many people who are professors, even non-tenure track professors, really identify with their work. They really value their work. They've made big sacrifices over the years to pursue this career rather than another career. And they really feel that it's a calling. And for some of those people, it could be hard to like wrap their minds around the idea that it was also work. 
um, that needed to be fairly compensated. Um, and so professors often, I would say, particularly at a small liberal arts college like Skidmore, they really identify with the institution and they identify with the college. And so even though the college treats them poorly, they have a hard time speaking up for themselves and advocating for what they need because of because of a long-standing relationship that they have to their work. So I would say that those that the fear and this kind of overinvestment in the idea that that you're doing what you love, that those were the two big problems, or, or I would say, I wouldn't say problems, I would say they were just kind of like, um, they were things that we persistently encountered when we would reach out to people who we would think would be really supportive. What other steps um, do you believe that faculty at Skidmore need to take to continue to progress in the union? Yeah, so um, we we voted successfully to unionize in September of 2022. So it has been uh, like just over a year since then. In that time, we've been doing a lot of work. We formed a negotiating committee. We found faculty from across the college, from representative areas, and formed a, a negotiating team. And that team has worked to draft our proposals and to begin bargaining with the administration to reach a collective bargaining agreement. So that process is ongoing. I would say that the first, second, third, and last, and every step, and every step in between, uh, the whole the whole thing, the whole process has been about getting to know and to trust your colleagues. So um, in the early phases of organizing, it was hard to find people. Um, you know, uh, we're not working, you know, shoulder to shoulder on an assembly line like, you know, unions did in, in the past or in manufacturing jobs. Like we each of these totally isolated lives, these totally isolated jobs. We're not on campus on the same days. We're in different buildings. We don't necessarily know each other. People are in and out. And so forming that community is was was a huge it was the project it was the whole project basically was forming a community and of course you know every community it needs to be nurtured and maintained and that's something that we're uh, you know we're, we're actively working on and we'll need to be working on until the end of time it's like a very important thing at skipmore like I'm, I'm assuming all college campuses but it's great to like hear just that it's an active goal to form like a strong bond and a strong community. Yeah, I mean, I would say that um, in in some ways, we as non tenure track faculty, we I mean, I think that I think that a union is a community ultimately. Um, but I also think that we specifically have been eager to use that language because of the way that the administration so often weaponizes it, right? Um, they'll be like, oh, this is, how dare you ask for more pay? This is a community, <laughs> you know? Um, you know, it, it's, this is also a workplace and, 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 and the workplace is responsible to compensate people fairly. Regardless, you know, I think, you know, I, I, getting, building trust among the, among people that you work with is the, is the fundamental project of forming a union. How do you believe that the union helped to benefit the value of students' education? I really, really feel that uh, unionized contingent faculty is in the best interests of students. Let me give you an example. I mentioned earlier that I teach a lot of these first-year writing classes, so I meet students in their very first semester of college. Just the, you know, a couple of months ago, I was walking down the hallway and I ran into a former student 
And she said to me, Professor McAdams, it's good to see you. And I am thinking about declaring uh, an English major. Um, Would you be my advisor? And I was, um, I was really touched by this because I, you know, I didn't really know that she had liked my class. <laughs> you never know. Um, and, um, you know, I was, I was touched by it, but I, I felt I really couldn't say yes, because I don't know if I'm going to have a job for the four years that she'll be at Skidmore. And so what that, what that meant was that I had to say to her, like, you've got to find someone else. And she probably doesn't know anyone else to ask, right? She, you know, first year, first year students in their first semester, like that can be a vulnerable time for, for, for people. And it meant basically that like, you know, the one person that she knew me couldn't be there for her. Right. I think that that's like stability in the faculty is in the best interests of the students where it's possible. Right. So obviously like there need to be NTT faculty or non-tenure track faculty, to fill short-term needs when there are short-term needs. But the issue is that what the college is doing is using short-term staffing to fill long-term needs. So I should be able to say to this student that I will be here for four years because I can tell you right now, the teaching I do, it will need to be done four years from now. But the college will not give me that security. They won't even say, if you keep doing a good job, then yeah, you can keep your job. They'll say, no, your job is ending at the end of this year. And then when the, when the year ends, they'll be like, whoops, here's a new contract for next year. And then one year after that, they'll be like, whoops, here's a new contract for next year. They'll never give me the ability to expect that if I continue to do well at my job, that I'll be able to keep it. They'll always treat me as though I'm like about to leave, about to leave, because they're about to not need me anymore. But they'll all, they always need me because they, they, they haven't gotten anyone on a more long-term basis to fill that role. Thank you, Ruth McAdams, and thank you for listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Carson Cowan is working on a series about adjunct professors and the conditions that they work under. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Vazilahickey. And I'm Mark Dunley. We want to thank all our volunteers who made today's episode possible, including Moses Nagel, Bria Barthel, and... Carson Cowan. We want to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening. Until next time.